same way. I miss you guys. And I, I, I come back, and there's like a sound booth in here, this new system. There's the drum aquarium, you know, where do not tap on the glass, don't feed the drummer. It's awesome. But it's cool to be back. Can't wait. Who knows what will be back when I come. But it, the, it really does sound good. I, uh, the sound system really is, is noticeable, noticeable and really good. Um, I, <clears throat> may, may I make one announcement of what not to do? You know, all, so far all the announcements are here's how to get involved. Here's what to do. This is an announcement of what not to do this week. Uh, I, I, I get it, man. Black Friday. I get it. There's all kinds of retailers. And uh, yeah. I understand, like, they, they have to make money. Many of them employ you and uh, indirectly employ uh, all kinds of things because retailers make money. I'm all for that. They have taken Christmas. Christmas is gone. We lost. But inching further and further and further toward Thanksgiving. Listen, I understand you've got to open stores, you've got to get doorbusters, you've got to get people in. And so, uh, you know, a couple years ago, it was 6 a.m., people would line up to get Black Friday deals, and then it was like 4 a.m., and then midnight, and last year, the dam broke, and it was, uh, I think, uh, you know, people were waiting in line Thanksgiving. Well, this year, it's just, you know, uh, uh, several real ta- retailers are opening at 8 p.m. Thanksgiving night, you know, and they're thinking is, look, you know, you're sick of your family anyway, let's come out. Uh, this is all I ask, don't go. Don't go. Not, not us. Not the church. Here's why. Oh, here's why. Yeah. Here's why. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings when the Balrog is coming to take the fellowship away, and I'm about to out-geek your whole church here. And uh, uh, Gandalf puts his staff on the bridge and says, you shall not pass. Right? He's like, You've, evil has come this far, but enough's enough. And then he looks at the fellowship and goes, fly, you fools. Like, run. Right? I'll stay here. That, that's all I'm saying. Like, that, at, at, at midnight 01, go crazy. Like, go, go wait in line somewhere. You can have all the Black Friday stuff. You know, that's fine. And some people say, but I want to miss out on those sweet deals. If I can't convince you, look, you cannot, it is so hard to be grateful for what you have if you're out getting more. It's just very hard to do that. And so, here, so here's the thing. I get that you're going to miss out on a lot of savings. Some of you will lose a big saving on a big ticket item. Because we believe in this so much, whatever savings you miss out on by just taking Thanksgiving and saying, holy day, this is holiday, holy day, I will not do it until midnight Thanksgiving night, whatever savings you miss out on, James Lecce has personally said he'll reimburse you. <laughs> Anything. <laughs> he, didn't really, he didn't really say that. <laughs> I offered that on his behalf. Uh, anyway, thus endeth the rant. But I won't see you in the stores Thursday. Friday, have at it, whatever you want. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 4 today. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. Mark chapter 4. <clears throat> Many of you have been so kind to ask and reach out. Uh, you've got uh, so much going on here in Long Island after uh, the storm Sandy and then the Nor'easter. And yet in the midst of all that, you were uh, texting me and emailing me. And uh, saying, how's your church? How are things there in Queens? And I appreciate those texts. And they really do mean the world. And uh, appreciate just the whole Lecce family and how they have uh, uh, sort of taken us in as well as part of their crew and their sheep to look after. And I, I, I really do appreciate that. Uh, we are well. One of the interesting things is that uh, there's a, uh, a series of, you know, like four or five blocks right next to the church. And wouldn't you know, uh, 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 the church never lost power. The church building never lost power. But right next to the church, like literally next door, literally our next door neighbor who is, I reach out for my church, I touch, like they're, you know, it's packed in tight together. They did lose power. Uh, there's, we're just on a different grid apparently. And so we were able to open up the church and have people come over, and uh, that was a really cool thing. The other thing is we have a mission house. I'll spare you all the long details, but uh, uh, one of our ministries has a house that we use for ministry on, in Rockaway Beach. And so we've been able to go down there, and uh, that has been a, a real a cool way that our church has been able to be the face of Christ uh, to many people. And I know that uh, your church is doing the same thing. If um, you uh, are without power, this church has ministered to you. And uh, if you have power, then it just means God spared you and gave you power so that you could minister to others and to use that. So don't, don't have flood guilt. 
You know what I mean? Where you're like, oh, I feel bad. My house wasn't washed away. Uh, you know, flood guilt. Or anybody going through flood guilt? If your house wasn't washed away, don't have flood guilt. Take that emotional energy and just turn it into service. It just means God's like, look, I spared you. Next time, I may not. And somebody else, you're going to have to be ministered to. But don't waste time on flood guilt. Just go and, and serve and, and do what you can. Uh, in, in reflecting on uh, the uh, Hurricane Sandy, one of the one of the phrases I heard over and over again, in, at least where I was, and I'm sure it was no different here in Long Island, is uh, people would say this, man, you know, it's, it's like uh, things are out of control. Out of control. That people have lost control. These gas lines are out of control. This sense of powerlessness is out of control. I mean, literally, people felt powerless because they were without electrical power. And may still, I may be preaching to people who are still without electrical uh, power. So things are out of control. We talk about how we've lost control. But does, any, does anyone ever really lose control? As I'm reflecting on this storm, if there's one thing I'm taking away, it's that uh, uh, there's a very thin veneer of civility covering our lives as a community, right? You know what that veneer is? If you've uh, ever lived in a college dormitory, you know what veneer is? Uh, what you do, if, if you want to take a really cheap piece of furniture and suddenly make it look expensive, uh, what you do is you, you, you take a really expensive hardwood, but you don't use the wood to build that furniture. You just take a thin little veneer, a thin little strip of a nice hardwood, and you slap it on top of a particle board or a press board, or, you know, it's, it's just junk, but you, put the, but you put that veneer on top, right? And so what happened in a place, in a time like this, is that veneer gets pulled back. And, and I realize just how thin that is. And so uh, uh, I don't think that we've ever really lost control of anything. No human has ever lost control of anything. What humans lose is the illusion of control. What we lost in that storm was this sense that we are in control. It was always a lie. It was always an illusion. And so don't ever say you've ever lost control of anything. What you've lost is that fun feeling that you're in control, which you never were. The feeling was just taken away. That's all. And you realized the truth. When that veneer was stripped away, we lose that illusion that we are the masters of our own destiny, when in fact, we're not. So I picked out a passage about a storm. Let's read it. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, hmm. rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, this sermon is not uh, particularly topical in the wake of the literal Storm Sandy for this reason. This is not going to be a sermon about how to endure adversity in troubled times because in this story, with just a word, Jesus takes the trouble away. You see? Uh, the, the, you know, there is no like, story of how the disciples endured through this problem. Jesus just made it go away. Sometimes that happens in Christianity. But we also know that Christianity is not a refuge from the uncertainties and insecurities of this world. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that talk about how to hold up under suffering, right? There are many times when it seems God chooses not to calm the raging storms of life. But in this particular case, the storm is quieted rather quickly. So the focus of the story is not going to be on the storm itself, but rather on the weakness of human beings and the divine power of Jesus. If you're a note taker and you're looking for a theme and you're looking for something to sort of, you know, the, the weakness of human beings and the divine power of Jesus. I want to walk us through verse by verse and that's the theme you're going to see keep reoccurring. The weakness of human beings, the divine power of Master Jesus. Uh, start at the beginning, verse 35. 
That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. That just as he was means he'd been teaching and healing and preaching. He's worn out. They didn't even take him home to get a snack. They didn't even let him go home and shower. They just took him right as he was. That's what that, that's talking about. But here's what I want you to see in these two verses. Uh, look at verse 35, and there are some red letters, man. There is a command. Jesus said, let us go over to the other side. So whose idea was it to cross this sea, to cross this lake? It was Jesus. That's right. It was the Lord's command to go to the other side. He is the master and commander. We find ourselves in this story at his command, at his design. And how many verses does it take before the disciples flip that whole script? Less than one. Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along. Isn't that funny? Like, how did it go from Jesus, master and commander, leading us to, come on, Jesus, get in the boat, we're going, right? Isn't that human nature? Isn't that what we do? It's his command, and then suddenly, in one verse, Mark changes the perspective, and I think he does it to show that it's not, he doesn't say, and thus he took them along. Thus Jesus took the disciples with him. It says very clearly, and thus they took him along. Jesus goes from being subject to object pretty quick and it happens many times in our lives doesn't it lord what do you have for me today if it's a storm grant me the grace to walk through it with you grant me the grace to minister to others if it's a beautiful awesome day where the sun is shining grant me the grace to enjoy it and not make it an idol and not try to hoard it so that i I get to experience it every day let me just be i you are the master and commander of these seas not me how quickly does it go from that to lord here's what i need you to do for me today you see it's natural doesn't take long for a human to think he's in control and then verse 37 A furious squall. That's such a great word. The Greek word can actually be translated hurricane. I could not find the Greek word for Frankenstorm. But for hurricane, you can translate that, squall. So my question is, who sent the furious squall? Here's a little uh, theological uh, lesson packed into verse 37. Who sent the furious squall? Before you think you have an easy answer figured out... uh, 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 you know, a little bit of background. The, the Hebrew people were not a seafaring people. The sea is not, for many of you, you know, you're Jimmy Buffett fans. You love the sea. You love to think about the ocean. In, in Israelite theology, the sea was the place of chaos. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit, or the, the Spirit hovered over the deep. It was chaos. This is the realm of the unknown. The sea is the place where God and chaos clash, where the forces of, of this is land and solid and order and God and all that is good, uh, and, and this is floating and ever-changing and moving, and, 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 and Jonah and the whale, this is a place of rebellion, you, you see? Uh, 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 the, the most... Uh, uh, A poignant moment of this, of course, would be the Israelites face their doom at the Red Sea. And God proves what? He's Lord over the sea. So there's a real ambivalence about the sea. I'm not saying that every time you see sea uh, or waters in the Old Testament, it means that it's evil or satanic. But just know that there is that that connotation. On top of that, the word Jesus, and I'll get to this in a minute, but the word Jesus used, it doesn't say say that he uh, uh, got up and he calmed the wind and waves. It doesn't say that he uh, got up and he physically rearranged the um, chemical elements of weather. Okay, I'm going to take that. Cero nimbus cloud, and I'm going to make that a stratus, and I'm going to, you know, he could have done all that. It doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say that he recreated. It doesn't say he redesigned. It doesn't say he scientifically analyzed the weather. It says rebuked the wind and wave. A very interesting choice, rebuke. There's only one other place we see that, and we see it a lot, especially in Mark. It's when Jesus talks to demons. Rebuke. It's the language of rebuke. Quiet, be still, not let me correct your weather patterns. In other words, we're dealing with something beyond nature. You see? So my hunch, you like that? (laughs) There's an authoritative word from the pulpit. But it's true, because I don't know. Uh, But my hunch, I'm just being honest with you. uh, My hunch is that the enemy, Satan, the prince of this world, as he often does, impersonated God and tried to convince the wind and waves to obey him. And Satan tried to destroy Jesus and his band of followers. Yeah, I say band because, remember, it's not just one boat. Did you read that in Mark? We just read it. There were also other boats with him. They had a little flotilla of disciples, and uh, Mark failed, to, I mean, I mean, I mean uh, uh, Satan failed to tempt Jesus and get him to fall, so he thinks, I will end this right here, right now. 
get them out on a boat. And, 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 and uh, you know, if you read commentaries, it talks about the way this, you know, this sea was created. It often squalls could come up. So Satan tries to use that to get wind and waves to destroy Jesus and his band of disciples. Just end it all right there. So if you told me, Tom, I think Satan caused this, because why else would he rebuke wind and wave? I would say, cool, I can go with that. I can totally go with that. But back up. Interestingly, as always happens, this storm, if I'm right, and Satan intended it for evil, what is the end result of this intent of Satan? What is, what is the end result of this? It becomes an epiphany for Jesus to display his matchless power. So this storm, intended for evil, is the very thing that Jesus is going to use, and we're going to preach about 2,000 years later, about the greatness of our... This is going to reveal Jesus as God. So in a larger sense, I'm perfectly fine with saying that God allowed it. And if you say, well, if God allowed it, you might as well, he, you might as well say he sent it. Fine. God sent it. I'm totally okay with saying that. Why? Because it means he had a larger purpose in mind than even Satan could see. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers back in the last chapter of Genesis? You remember they were mean to his brothers. They tried to kill him. Yeah, so many things happened. Eventually Pharaoh and Egypt and ah, skinny cows, fat cows, famine. You remember the story? That's sort of the fast-forwarded version. And uh, uh, they come to Joseph, and Joseph's like, well, he's obviously going to kill us because we you know, tried to kill him and all that stuff. And he says, listen, don't be afraid, guys. What you intended for harm, God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You know, I, I, don't, know how, um, I don't know how frustrating you think your job is, but, I mean, Satan... His best moves, like his best laid plans, this will be the thing that ends it. This will be the storm that causes, because he's got a demoniac on the other side waiting, right? I mean, he's got that the garrison demoniac, the cutting the guy, and the legion of demons. He's got a legion of demons. So he's thinking, if I end it, if Jesus gets over there, who knows what will happen? I can end it right here. And so his best laid plan only serves to further his defeat. And his very best plan of all, the cross... Well, that ended in Easter and the salvation of mankind. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing he can do that's going to work. His own plans will be turned against him. Such is the power of our Lord. So if you say Satan caused it, fine. But I would say in a bigger perspective, God allowed it. God caused it, fine. Verse 38. So much crammed into this little tiny verse. So much here. Je Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Can we talk about the cushion for a minute? Because if you're going to sleep and you're the Lord of creation, get a pillow. You know, might as well be comfy. <laughs> People ask me why I believe the Bible. In my I'm, I'm, you know, apologetics and all that stuff. Let me boil it down for you. Here's why I believe the Bible. You ready? The resurrection. That's it. That's everything you need to know about my apologetics. Here's the deal. See, I believe that on Easter Sunday morning, there was a man who was dead as a doornail, totally dead, and those dead lungs, actual his body, those dead lungs took a breath. That dead heart that was stone cold dead and had been crucified started beating again. So I believe this crazy story that a dead man came back to life. Let me tell you something. If dead man back from the life dude says the Bible's true, good enough for me. Thus sendeth my apologetic. That's everything, man. Everything for me is Easter. I mean, people have all kinds of, you know, what about C.S. Lewis's argument for moral theory? And, you know, what about uh, Tim Keller goes through some of the reason for God and all that stuff? Listen, if the guy who came back from the dead says it, I'm all in. So everything for me, everything for me, yeah. And, and Lewis and Keller, by the way, would both say the same thing. You didn't hear me say any, those, uh, uh, but that, but that, it makes it simple for me. Listen, everything for me is about Easter. The whole story is about the resurrection. If Jesus came back from the dead, I'm all in. If he didn't, I'm out. My preaching's useless. Your faith is in vain and mine too. So everything for me comes down to the resurrection. If we find some ancient scroll tomorrow where some hidden you know, words of Jesus that he spoke to his disciples right before, and we won't, but if, if we did and it said, oh, I command every disciple of mine to, to stand on their head every morning and eat Cheerios, and if we found out Jesus really said that, guess what I'm doing tomorrow morning? I won't demonstrate. I will be on my head eating Cheerios. Why? Because if, if dude back from the dead said it, I'm doing it. That, that's it for me. You understand? The resurrection. But if I had to pick a second reason why I believe in the Bible, it would be Mark chapter 4, 38, the cushion. 
They're not even close. Everybody, the resurrection is everything to me. But if you force me to pick a backup reason why I believe the Bible, it's the cushion. You know why? How does a cushion get in this story? The cushion does nothing to further the plot. The cushion does nothing to add to this story. The cushion has no purpose. The only reason you would put that he was asleep on a cushion is if you saw it with your own eyes. That's eyewitness stuff. You don't make up cushions when you make up stories about Jesus. You say Jesus was in the stern, or you talk about all this stuff, but you don't say he was on a cushion. Now, why does Mark put that in there? Because Peter saw it. Or whoever, whoever Mark's taking it down from, he saw it. That's why. So I, I believe in the Bible because of the resurrection. But, if, but the cushion helps, you know? <laughs> the only explanation for the cushion is that somebody saw this stuff happen. You get what I'm saying? And the people that wrote it were alive. If you didn't believe it, you could just go and ask them. I'd love to be that guy, though, that, like, he's asleep. <laughs> you know, like, what an act of worship. To be. Anyway. Um, the disciples, on the other hand, are in total meltdown mode. Jesus is asleep on the cushion. The disciples are on total meltdown mode. They're in full panic. And their desperation shows up in sarcasm. And, boy, we saw a lot of that, even among um, Oh, even among uh, good people, what happened? That veneer was ripped off. And at first, we're waiting in line, and it's going to be a long time. And the next thing you know, two or three hours go by, and that veneer gets less and less. And three or four hours go by, and somebody jumps in line, and we pull out a gun at a gas station. Why? The veneer has been ripped off. See? Meltdown mode. Now, you may not have pulled out a gun at a gas station, but... (laughs) But... But and, and again, that's the whole thing I'm saying. We don't lose control. We lose this veneer of civility. There's a guy in jail in Queens right now waiting trial going, that was not me. I don't know what came over me. How does that anger? And that, what I'm trying to say from a Christian perspective is that's totally you. The veneer is just the civility we put on top. We are desperately in need of a savior. We are seven days of empty store shelves from meltdown mode. What we need, well, we'll talk about what we need in just a second, but it's, it's not going to be solved by better infrastructure and by becoming a National Geographic doomsday prepper where we build a, a, a horde of stash or whatever. It's not that. Our sin problem is what must be dealt with. So the disciples' desperation shows up in sarcasm. And after a long day of volunteering, and I didn't do, I didn't do a, tenth, a fraction of what some of our volunteers have been doing down there every day. But I worked a long day in Rockaway Beach, and uh, uh, even at the end of that, I felt even, here I am as a volunteer trying to serve these people, I felt my own sarcasm. I thought, you know, you just get fatigued, and you get this desperation, and the next thing you know, these people, these poor people are coming to me, and I'm like, seriously, you're going to tell me what kind of soup? Look, I just, please don't make me go back there. You know, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I'm supposed to love these people and help them. So I'm like, I'm, I'm so sorry, Jackie, I'll get the soup, and I'll bring <laughs> They're in a full pain. So this is not a prayerful plea. Oh, Jesus, we come to you now in this faith. This is a snarky, sarcastic assault on Jesus, who they think is oblivious to their predicament. Here's the way they see it. Here's an able-bodied man. The boat is taken on water. Grab a bucket. Instead, bail, you know, bail out the boat. Instead, he is sleeping. And so this whole, teacher, don't you care if we drown, if that sounds sarcastic? Because it is. They're, uh, 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 this is not some happy, uh, pr- they're in desperation mode. They're saying, hey, Jesus, newsflash for you. We're all going to die. We just wanted to know if you wanted to be awake for your last few seconds or not. Total meltdown. Strip away that veneer of control and civility, that illusion of control and civility is out the window. Take away power, grocery shelves run dry, gasoline runs out, and suddenly we see our neighbors in meltdown mode. We see ourselves in meltdown mode, threatened us, threaten our families, meltdown. And before we leave this verse, one last thing we have to talk about. Jesus in dreamland, a sleeping on a, asleep on a cushion. Listen, Satan is out there unleashing hell to destroy Jesus. And Jesus' faith in God is so strong, he's sleeping like a baby. You know the only place we ever get to see Jesus sleep? in the midst of the storm. It's the only time you see Jesus chilling, just sleeping. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he did other places, but here he is asleep. Isn't that a funny expression, sleeping like a baby? 
That, that whole thing, sleeping like a baby. I don't know how my kids missed that memo. <laughs> but I've never thought that's very funny at all. Sleeping like a baby <laughs> means hurting the people you love. You know, sleeping like a baby's not cool. But at any rate, uh, in this whole storm, not once did my 11-month-old Carson, not once did little Carson look at me as an 11-month-old during this whole storm. Not once did Carson say, yo, Dad, how's our stash of formula, right? Yes. Not once. Why? Trust. He's never known anything but trust. And he sleeps, or in his case, doesn't sleep. But the point is, the storm didn't cause him any sleeplessness. Trust. See, as grown-ups, we have grown old, and throughout life, this is what has happened. Person after person has hurt us and let us down. We have let ourselves down. So what we do is build up this distrust. And eventually, we take all that distrust that we've gathered over life, because we can't trust you and I can't trust myself, we take all that hurt, and we can't help it, we apply some of it to God. You are like people, God. And these people that have hurt me, and I've hurt myself, the same distrust, there's no way you can be above that. You too. How can I trust you? But not Jesus. He's never believed this lie that God is like a person. Never once. He knows his father. He believes his father. And so he sleeps. It's that simple. Imagine Jesus to never once, never once apply that, that lack of trust to his heavenly father. He's able to sleep in the storm. It's not my time. Hmm. All hell's being unleashed against your little boat. I, I, know, I know dad. The meltdown, it's the humans that wake him up. Jesus didn't ever, I don't think he ever would have woke up startled. Remember a few uh, m months ago or whatever, I was preaching and I said, the things that you're afraid of, uh, uh, they're afraid of God. The things that you fear, bow, they cower before our Lord. So anyway, uh, verse 39, uh, he gets up, I told you, rebukes the wind and wave. I won't rehash this. This is a word of exorcism. He, it's the same command he uses in exercising commanding demons he rebukes the wind and wave satan has tried to stir up the sea but the waters immediately know the voice of their maker and so whoa right immediately calm and the disciples may not have been bible scholars but of course they know this as they're thinking they're, they're watching all this happen they say wait a minute only god controls the seas what is Jesus doing? What only God can do. And there are many, many examples I could point to in the Old Testament. Uh, you might think of Psalm 107, but there are countless of how God controls the seas. Uh, Psalm 107 is, Some went out in the sea in ships. There are merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. He spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted up the high waves. They mounted up to the heavens, went down to the depths. In their peril, the men's courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They're at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Only God does that. Jesus does here what only God can do, and that brings us to the conclusion, verse 40. So he says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I don't see Jesus so much. He's not angry at his disciples. It's just sort of a curious disappointment. Like, guys, I, you know, I, you know we've, I've been with you here for a little while, and I've been teaching, and, you know, um, I, it's like, come on. Where are we here in this process, right? Uh, let me ask you something. Most of all, uh, quick, this is a quick, quick little quiz. What were Jesus' last words to the disciples before he fell asleep? Anybody remember? Without looking, don't go back on the screen. Okay, fine, it's open book, just look, yeah. <laughs> what were Jesus' last words before he fell asleep? Do you remember? Let's go to the other side. Guys, I told you, let's go to the other side. So here's the deal. If I say we're going to the other side, guess where we're going? No ifs ands or storms it's my command that's why he's saying guys why are you so afraid do you still have no faith no faith in god but but no faith in christ 
If I say we're going to the other side, and, and that's, it brings us back. Whose idea was it to go to the other side? Who led them right into this storm? It's easy to forget this. As you look at all your circumstances, it's easy to think that, just like in this story, we, we remember the story wrong. We think the disciples led the way, and they dragged poor, helpless, drowsy, sleepy Jesus and threw him in the boat. But that's not the truth. Jesus is the one who said, let's go to the other side. And if Jesus says we're going to the other side, we're going to the other side. It's like Jesus saying, don't be fooled by my sleeping. I am the master and commander here. Because not for nothing, on the other side is a demon-possessed man who has been possessed by a legion of demons who is so desperate, he's cutting himself and he's been chained up. And on the other side, there's a woman who for 12 years has had an issue of blood and the doctors have done everything they can, but all they've really done is taken her money. And uh, uh, there's a man who has a 12-year-old daughter who's so sick she's about to die, and he's desperate. And on the other side are all those people. And God says, we're going to the other side, and I will show you in the lives of these desperate people just who I am. And you have no faith that when I say we're going over there, the wind and really, if I say we're going over there, you think I'm going to let the wind and waves that I created stop us? No way. I'm going back to bed. Sometimes young people come to me for counseling about what God's speaking to them, and they often mean, you know, what am I supposed to do with my life? What is the great word of God that I'm supposed to follow? And sometimes to get them thinking, I'll ask them, well, what was the last thing you heard God tell you to do? Have you done that? If not, just go and do that. Instead of waiting for some new revelation, if he told you we're going to the other side, just go, sort of go back to that. And I'm not saying that's, all, that's the end all be all, uh, but it certainly gets people thinking like, you know what, you're right. The hard part in all this is obedience. I think we know what to do. Uh, verse 41, sorry, I closed my Bible just one second too early. They feared, uh, perfect. They feared, th- th- this they were terrified is great in the Greek. It's, a, it's a redundant. They feared with a great fear is how it is. So the, the idea is there's tremendous fear. And I get it. We pick on the disciples, but come on. Like, there's a difference in a miracle worker who is used by God to heal. Like, when the disciples see Jesus healing, it's like, okay, I can see how God would empower a human to heal. Or I could see how God could empower a human to teach with such authority as Jesus does. But there's a big difference in, hey, there's a really special miracle worker right here on my boat, and God himself is right here on my boat. Do you understand? So, you know, I got to sort of go easy on the disciples. It's kind of like this. Imagine uh, you're... It's like the disciples are trying to study the sun. Imagine there's someone who studies the sun. You're a solologist. <laughs> when you study the sun, you don't do it by... St- Nobody would study the sun by going right up next... I mean, we're 93 million miles from the sun. And you say, well, that's too far. I really want to study it. So I get six inches from the sun, right? And this is how I'm going to study the sun. Well, you're going to... You're gonna, you're, that's not going to end well, right? Right? You're just... You're going to be absorbed into the sun. But you, you, you're going to die. Uh, in a way, isn't it kind of like the disciples miss... It, the point is, you're not going to come back with any great knowledge of the sun. If anything, you're just going to be <laughs> afraid and terrified. You, you, get, you get where I'm going? Isn't it true that in the life of the disciples, in many ways, they couldn't see Jesus because the sun was just too close? It's like they were trying to study the sun, but they were six inches away. You get what I'm saying? We look at the disciples and we're like, I don't see the problem. I'm looking at it indirectly through the lunar eclipse of this book. What's your problem? Well, okay, but you've been able to step back and reflect. And you've got men and women throughout history and church history who are right. You've got, you know, John. You've got the Word saying, okay, in the beginning was the Word. Let me spell this out for you. The Word was... It's easy for us to say. Now, it's not the first time that Jesus causes more fear than he resolves. <laughs> I will say that. He's about to go and heal this garrison demoniac, and the same sort of thing happens. People are like, we're scared to death. Get out of our town, right? Uh, that's going to happen. But the question is, what do you do with this fear? Uh, and that, that's where we are, I think, post-Sandy. Is what do you do with these fears when things raise up in our mind? I mean, do we just put them away and say, wow, we dodged another big storm, made it out okay, wait for the next one? Like, do you try to look at what is God doing in an epic sense in our life? I mean, do you try to... Um, when the Israelites in Exodus 14 when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord it says the same thing the people feared the Lord but they add this they feared the Lord and put their trust in him and then the later Israelites when fear came okay, they didn't put their trust in him this is sort of a cliffhanger ending the disciples feared with a great fear what? Louis XV said after I the flood 
But what people are asking me is, after the flood, what? After this fear, after this great fear, right? What? Will the disciples put their trust in him? Will they put their faith in him? Or will they put their faith elsewhere? Fear, I think, as an emotion, as a reaction, fear itself, if we could just sort of extract that, just the emotion, I'm going to say is usually not a sin. The fear itself, that fear you feel, is usually not a sin. But fear, what it is, it's always a crossroads that now you choose to go down a route of sin or a route of faith. You see? Fear itself is not the, not the sin. It's the thing that brings us to this choice, to this crossroads. Fear can cause us to harden ourselves, to strengthen ourselves, improve and rebuild self-confidence and rebuild total dependence on ourselves. Or fear can lead us to humble ourselves before God, to cry out to him that we are not as strong as we think we are. Let fear, my point is, let fear soften us and lead us to faith and trust in him and not in our own might. And that's where we are, I think, as a city. That's where we are, I think, as a, as a nation right now. Some are saying the greatest need, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hearing New Yorkers talk, the greatest need in our city going forward is we need better infrastructure. You know, we need to upgrade our 108-year-old subway system. We need to become more self-sustained in our energy use. Some would say it's gas supply. Some would say it's a means of defense or protection. Uh, we need to figure out global warming so we can avoid these disasters. Other people think if we could have just gotten this person elected into office, or if we could have this, this congressman or this political party, if we get the right politicians in place, everybody's got, a, got a, an idea of what the greatest need in our city is. And I think of anything the storm should teach us, the greatest need in our city is humility before the Almighty. Like before we even think about rebuilding, what is God trying to say to us? The kind of humility that says, Lord, in life and in death, in death, we are yours. We stand or fall not on the strength of our own will but on the promise of thy word. And if you say in your word, we're going to the other side, then our faith is in you and we're going to the other side. Now look, I'm not against preparedness. Have a backup plan, have a go bag, get a landline, fine. I'm, I'm not against that, All right? And of course, I think everybody should vote and be politically active and, and, and think, you know, all that stuff through. But my question is, what does it profit Long Island if we take every precaution in the world but lose or forfeit human souls? Like, what if we become impregnable to any storm but human souls die and go to hell? What, is, what have we profited? I'd rather be part of a community with a little chaos on the outside. Check. <laughs> but who's got it where it counts? The deep calm and the stern anchored by Jesus. It's funny, that's where you would throw an anchor. Turns out he is the anchor. As opposed to a city, don't give me a city that's got calm on the surface, that tells me everything's under control, that's peace, peace when there is no peace, with nothing in the stern, with absolute chaos lurking just beneath the surface. I'm not asking that my city or Long Island be protected and excused from all wind and wave. What I'm praying for is a city, is a community that trusts the maker of wind and wave. Let's pray. Father, as we are in the midst of uh, uh, rebuilding, I pray that it would be a whole different kind of rebuilding, a great humility, a great uh, tenderness toward you and toward others. And I pray, Father, that even as we enter in preparedness, that there would be a whole new meaning to preparedness, that it would be done with great humility. And before we rebuild, I pray that there would be moments in people's lives where they stop and take stock of what you're saying. The greatest need in our lives is uh, not for that insurance check to come through or that uh, 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 volunteer crew to arrive. Uh, Those are great needs, but our greatest need is you, Father. It's to hear from you. It's to be changed by you. And I pray for my city. I pray for my own community there where I live. And I pray for my friends and my brothers and sisters here on the island, Father, that we will not miss this great moment, that these cataclysmic events that you've been sending us, I pray, oh, Father, for for, uh, wise and discerning people. Thank you, God, for your servant, Irvin Baxter, and many, many others who can read your word and discern. But, Father, I pray for those that maybe don't even have that kind of discernment, just some common sense to take these lessons, to say, Father, we humble ourselves before you. We are not master and commander of our own destiny. And I pray that we would learn, we would grow, and we would have that trust in you, the master of wind and wave. Thank you, Father, for your word, since we're going to the other side. 
Thank you, Father. We can depend on that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to, um, yeah, praise the Lord. That's fine. He, I mean, he knew. He knew. Jesus knew, uh, even after being with the disciples that whole time, he knew that it's so hard to trust God. For all the reasons I said, it's like everybody, you know, deals with people, and God is not people, Right? But everybody, because they deal with people day in, day out, and people hurt one another, and people say they're going to do something, but then they, they do the opposite. They say they're going to, you can trust them, but then it turns out you, you can't trust them. And then that happens in my own life. I say I'm going to follow God. I say I'm going I'm to get over this sin. I'm going I'm to finally make it, and then I don't. Jesus knew that. And that's why we have, uh, partly why, we have this table, this reminder. Come, he says, in remembrance of me. I get it. There's a lot of lies being floated around. And forget it. Listen, not for nothing. This weekend is like lie central. You are a consumer. What will you consume? Be defined this year by what I can sell you, right? You got a big dollar sign above your head. And yet when you come to the Lord's table, okay, there's no dollar sign. Here's the thing. Jesus could always tell the truth because he didn't have anything to sell. The reason we lie is we're trying to sell you something. I'm a, I'm a really good person. You should trust me. I'm a, this is a really good product, whatever. These lies, they come from the, I got to manipulate. Gotta, Jesus had nothing to sell. What he had, he came to give freely, you see. And so when you come in remembrance, this is the reminder. This is truth in a world of lies. It's like God is saying to you with words, that's what I'm doing, and now with your taste buds, you're intimately taking in this food into your nucleuses of your little cells. So with every fiber of your being, what's he saying? You can trust me. See? You can trust me. In a way that, I get it. You can't trust other people. That's fine. They've hurt you. I understand. You can trust me. I can be trusted in the midst of wind and waves. And that's why we come in remembrance of Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took some bread. After he had given thanks, he broke it. And he says, this is my body. Given. Not sold. Given. For you. In like manner, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant. In my blood, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come to this truth table. Receive the forgiveness of Master Jesus. The ushers know how to get us to the table in a way that's reverent, allows us to reflect and pray, and the worship team's going to help us do just that. Just follow their lead as you come to the table.
hope's in you. You are mighty, ever mighty God. We've silenced lions. We've slayed our giants. Emmanuel, God is with us. We've shouted victory. We found our liberty, Emmanuel, God is with us, and you have never failed us, God, and you will never fail, we will not forget all your benefits, we will not forget. All you've done for us, you are for us, ever for us, God. We will not forget what you brought us through. We're not letting go, all our hopes in you. You are mighty, ever mighty, God. God, and you will never fail. You have never failed us, God, and you will never fail. We will not forget all your benefits. We will not forget all you've done for us. brought us through we're not letting go all our hopes in you you are mighty ever mighty God oh you are mighty ever mighty As, uh, as we as pastors, what we said in the announcement about Israel, we'd like to join now for the next few moments. And John will lead us in that prayer for Israel and what is going on. It's, it's definitely a crossroad. It's definitely a storm. And we need, to, we need to acknowledge that as Christians, that we come before the Lord and ask for His benefits, His strength, courage to the people to stand in this hour, this difficult time. Yes. Israelis and Palestinians. John? Well, Lord, as a church, we come before you today, Father. We humbly come before you and hold up our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, Lord. We hold up Israel and we hold up the Palestinians, Father. We know Israel is your chosen people, Lord. And it doesn't always mean everything that they do is, is right, Lord, but we know that you are in the midst of everything that is happening there, Father, and that you are on the throne, Lord. And we know that there, even right now, as things look dire and bleak, Father, that you have a purpose and a plan, Father. And everything in this world is culminating at some point that we are, working, we are moving forward very fast, Father. We are moving very fast towards a culmination where you will return to this earth, Father, and you will set up your kingdom, Father, and the kingdoms of men will be no longer, Father. 
just pray for the people, Father, that are in, the, in harm's way, Lord. We just pray on both sides, Father, for the Palestinians and the Israelis, Lord. We pray that, that you will cover these people, Father, and that damages won't be uh, unnecessarily done, Father, that you, your, your purpose and plan will go forward with, with minimal damage to people, Father. And our hearts just go out for them. Lord, I just think of, um, gosh, I thought about this week, Lord. Imagine just rockets, you know, falling into our Long Island right now, Father, and, you know, my kids' schools or something. And, you know, it seems so far away, so it's not important to us, Lord. Just like this storm came on us, Father, and we've seen it on the news and other places, and it's just, you know, it's a news story. But, Lord, it's not a news story. It's it's people, Father, and it's, it's your people, Father. And you created every single one of these people, whether they're whatever side they're on, Lord. And your heart is that everyone would come to you. And, Lord, we just want to stand there now, Father, and say, there's a great awakening coming before this all ends, Lord. And we know that you are going to show yourself real and new to these people, Father, and, and the Israelis and the Palestinians, Lord. That you will take the blinders off the Israelis, Father, and show them, Father, that you are, Jesus was the Messiah, Lord. And that you will also show the Palestinians, Father, that the doctrines and the, and the beliefs that they have, are, are they don't hold water, Father. They're not true, Father. That they don't stand up to you, God Almighty. And that your God, you, God, are not the same God that they preach and worship, Father. So reveal yourself in these situations, Lord. We know time is short, Father. There is a there is a quickening and a storm coming, Father, in the Middle East, Father. We just want to we just want to be ready, Lord, to be ready to take in people, Father, as they come to you, Lord, because there's a great awakening and a great revival coming, Lord. Prepare our hearts, just like Pastor Tom said today. Don't don't have storm guilt. Lord, there's a purpose and a reason why you know, maybe some of us, even in this country, when things go bad, that we'll be a storm and a place of refuge for the storm. So, Lord, prepare our hearts now so that we're ready when the storm hits. Lord, use these situations like Hurricane Sandy to not, again, fall asleep like Tom said, to just say, oh, well, it's over now, we're good. We go back to living on, on the edge because what we revealed, Father, what you revealed, Lord, was that our lives are hanging by a thread here. This, the, the lifestyle that we have hangs by a thread, Lord. So thank you for revealing that to us, Lord, and now make it quicken in our hearts, Father, that we take every moment, every day captive, Lord, to do your purpose and your will. Let your kingdom come. 